0: The football pod with Paddy and Andy. The
1: opposition can smell blood this year. We're as well packing in because even if Cumberford's kickouts are as good as Cluxton's, every team is taking a step
0: forward. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now you're very welcome back. So we're chatting through the Sunday Papers. Very happy to say we have Vincent Hogan with us, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Independent. Hi, Vincent hey joe. and johnny ward with us as well racing journalist often here talking football on saturdays as well johnny great to have you with us uh,
2: how are you getting on joe
0: great so the front pages oh my god england italy central so i'm conscious a lot of people will podcast this as well on a monday we'll try and keep this as uh, date free as possible but uh, so front page we'll start with the observer and it's just a big old red and white cover there england expects is the very short headline uh, euro 2020 final pages two through to 19 <laughs> in the observer and that is a lot of words so uh, that sets the tone i think the uh, sunday people this is their front page i mean forget about back pages this uh, is obviously just the biggest story in town over in england pride of england giant uh, line and the various players surrounding the picture there and then the back page it's a picture of garrett southgate and, Tom Cruise, as well, as you'll find, is across uh, a lot of the back pages. Mission Impossible. It seems that Tom Cruise, who's in London, he was at Wimbledon yesterday, uh, facetimed the team to wish them luck. So that's leading the way for a lot of the papers. The back page of The Sun here it's a picture of Harry Kane on a motorbike and then Tom Cruise inside. Mission Impossible. Kane, we can cruise to victory. Harry Kane talking here about uh, Tom Cruise facetiming the team and how that was very nice. Now, Sunday Mirror, again, picture of the team celebrating from the Denmark game on top of Harry Kane. You can fly high. England's top guns told to bring it home by movie star Cruise. It's amazing the prominence of the Tom Cruise angle here, but there you go. And then uh, the Sunday World, we have Mancini. Is Italy coming home? Missouri out to destroy the English dream of Euro glory at Wembley. And they say that... Um, Roberto Mancini has declared his side are technically superior to their Wembley rivals. His actual quotes, though, are England are physically stronger than us all over the park, not just in midfield, but football is played with the ball to feet. So hopefully, our sorry, sorry, so we hope our technique can win out. I wouldn't say he's declared, it's better. He's hoping their technique wins out. But that's Mancini in the back page there. Sunday independent. So we're away from the English pictures here. It's Kerry on a mission. It's a photo last night of Kerry's uh, win against... Tipperary a throw in and then Kane is determined to have final say beneath that again Harry Kane was obviously speaking to the press yesterday uh, the mail on Sunday picture of Harry Kane home truths are England finally ready to make history against Southgate and Kane believe they are but the Italians are equipped to spoil the party and then beneath that scullion misses Tokyo to protect mental health this is Irish marathon Runner Stephen Scullion has revealed he will not compete in the Olympic Games as he wants to prioritise his mental health. He was one of the inform Irish athletes of recent years, writes Shane McGrath, ran a brilliant time of two hours, nine minutes, 49 seconds in the elite only London Marathon last year to secure his place in Tokyo. However, he said on social media last night, I'll not be uh, going to Tokyo. And until I feel in a better place with mental health, I am taking some time to myself. I apologise to anybody who supported me until now and feels let down. Well, I think we are all in agreement. There is zero apology needed there. And I think he should be commended for looking after himself. And then Sunday Times, finally, picture of the Lions. And it's Connor Murray and Tom Curry, it looks like, celebrating last night. They beat the Sharks again, 71 points to 31, smiling. But for how long? Another easy win for Lions. But things go from bad to worse off the pitch. I might start with that front page, by the way, on the Sunday Times on the Lions front. The news now from the South African camp, not good. 26 positive COVID cases in South African camp. This is Brendan Nell writing here, Vincent. So the South African rugby officials have flown in their chief security officer and chief medical officer to the Springbok camp to ensure that protocols in the biobubble are being followed. It would seem that the South African Rugby Chief Executive Jury Roo also turned up at the hotel. And according to the Sunday Times here, read the Riot Act to the team this week, warning of the severe financial consequences if the tour is cancelled because of a COVID outbreak. And Roo, that's Jury Roo, the South African Chief Executive, has also sent in Rory Stein. So Rory Stein was Nelson Mandela's bodyguard back in the day. So he has been sent in to make sure that protocol are being obeyed. And then one complicating factor with the test on July 24th to come. The first test players have to undergo a medical before plane test to ensure no lasting damage was done to their heart and lungs by COVID. That process can delay the return by up to 17 days. So things are getting very sketchy here. I don't know the ins and outs of that 70 day process, that 17 day process. But uh, it's mentioned here in The Sunday Times tests on heart and lungs. And like I said, first test scheduled for July 24th. So things are getting very tight now. Uh, It's quite interesting, Vincent, to see the South African chief executive reading the riot act, as The Sunday Times puts it, because the lines have had two cases, but in fairness to them and their procedures, those two cases have been contained, whereas this seems to be ripping through the South African camp at the moment.
1: It does, Joe. And, you know, it does it does remind you you know, you, you're kind of from from this remove, you're still asking yourself, why is this tour going ahead? It, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense from this distance. But of course, one of the reasons it's going ahead is the South African Rugby Union needs the finances from a, a Lions tour. So I would say that the chief executive there that they're probably living on their nerves here because this seems to be hanging by a thread. But what I find really interesting about the coverage this morning is the divergence of opinion between those of us who are on this side of the equator and those of us who, are, and those who have actually traveled. And, and Stephen Jones, uh, writing in the Sunday times is very much buying into the siege mentality that I presume Warren Gatland wants his, his traveling party to, you know, absorb, I suppose, because of the extraordinary conditions. And Stephen's piece is very interesting to me because he he starts by writing about the the Welsh hooker, Ken Owens, and the players are consistently getting these messages, stay in your room. So for Wednesday, Ken Owens basically spent the day in his room playing Candy Crush Saga on his phone. Now this is so far removed from the traditional idea we have of being Alliance tourist in a, a country like South Africa and all of the social aspects of it and the meeting and greeting local people, going and giving coaching sessions. Here is a player in his room, on his phone, phone playing games. But the quotes that stand out for me from Stephen Jones, who is over there, he says, it may be significant that the opinion seems to differ sharply when you draw an equatorial line across the arguments. It may be significant that no one in the Lions party is less than totally dedicated to getting the job done, no matter what. And no one in the small group of camp followers in other professions reporting technical etc differs. It may be the sharing of similar privations or it may be that inspiration is something that comes from being up close. But some of us are becoming increasingly inspired by the tenacity and professionalism of these lions in the face of the enemy brackets the virus, not the spring box. And that's so far from, you know, I'm reading Rory Keane in the Mail, Brendan Fanning in The Sunday Independent, and they're taking what seems to me is a perfectly logical analysis of this, which is it's a misadventure from day one. It shouldn't have gone ahead. But Stephen Jones, who's out there, is buying into the siege mentality.
0: What's your read on it, Johnny?
2: Yeah, it's well, uh, kind of, I suppose, explained there by Vinnie that, you know, if... The last time I saw Vinny, I think we were at Cheltenham, Vinny, last year working. And if ever there was a situation of being over somewhere where it was completely different to, to the kind of situation at home, and it was an evolving situation, and, um, you were almost in your own bubble at that time. And this seems something similar in that um, it looks quite preposterous, really, to me from afar that this is going ahead. Like you read the, the juxtaposition of the two headlines in the front of the... Sunday Times which is 26 positive cases and then injury doubt over Russell um, which almost seems completely irrelevant you know and Brendan Fanning's piece which I think is laced with kind of you know um cynicism really he just talks about the fundamentals of this being about money effectively uh, professional sport is all about keeping the show on the road dignity is a bonus um, he calls it a- as you say, ridiculous or farce. Um, and he, he talks about how the Heineken Cup was actually born out of the idea that um, they needed professional players to be playing more rugby. And it's just astonishing how many cases are. Like, I haven't really been following the lines, to be honest. And I, I'm less inclined to follow it when I hear every day of, you know, the latest kind of COVID farce. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's bonkers. I mean, I, I, I don't know from people maybe who are into rugby is the feeling that this just will go ahead at all costs because it it looks, it looks a bit of, it looks a bit scandalous at this stage, really 26 cases in the, in the, in one camp. I mean, where do we go from here? And COVID is, COVID has been around a long time at this stage, but you know, sometimes you forget how, how dangerous this can be. And when you, you make that point there, uh, Joe, about the, 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 um you know, the, I guess the, but they're doing the test so that, you know, you're not showing any repercussions several days later and so forth. I, I, do, I don't really know how, how this can go on.
0: Yeah, it seems like it is going on. The threat of long COVID, I'm sure, is one that's occurred to lots of the players, and that would have a devastating mm. effect on their careers. For one thing, it seems, Vincent, as if this is going ahead. There is an existential threat to the finances of South African rugby. They need this test and the television money and everything that might go with it desperately there is no room in the calendar for this to happen next year so you get the impression they have just decided that the option of flying everybody up to the UK is off the table logistically flying down to Cape Town might help in the short term but really this is a wave and it's working its way through the country so uh, Cape Town will be just as affected very very soon you get the impression they're just hanging in there and just hoping 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 that the three tests go off without a major hitch and by a major hitch I mean Either so many cases that one of the games has to be cancelled or so many cases that the integrity of the game really is always remembered as being somewhat dubious. And they figure, I would think, if we can get out of this with three really good test matches, then the slightly ridiculous start of the tour, which is what we're enduring at the moment, will be forgotten. They may well be correct in that assertion if it goes that way. But at the moment, the 26 positive COVID cases in the South African camp, the way the lines were affected midweek. From this vantage point, the likelihood of those three tests going off without a hitch seems near impossible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you said the first test, is it um, 24. 24? Yeah, um, it seems an eternity away in, in, in these circumstances. And Rory Keane mentions the fact that of 59 million South Africans, I think three percent have been vaccinated at this stage. We have no real clarity either on how many of the South African players, uh, or their, their their extended party, have been vaccinated. And that's something, you know, that Brendan Fanning touches on his. He, he writes, it's, it, it beggars belief that in such a risky adventure, both camps were not out front on the issue of vaccination. Lions managing director, Ben Calveley was simply evasive on why the round of double jabs did not cover every man and woman in the traveling party, which is astonishing to me listening to him dodge the issue was like hearing a platoon commander as his troops were going over the top conceding that not everyone had live ammo as it should be a matter of personal choice Like that sums up the almost comedic nature of this and I just find it very hard to see in a situation where today we're hearing 26 positives in the Springbok camp, 14 of whom are players, it's very hard to see how we get to July 24, without this disintegrating further. And you know, an interesting piece by Stuart Barnes in The Sunday Times, he makes what I think is the not unreasonable point that maybe the way they should have gone is just play three test matches. If you want to go ahead, play the three test matches, but any warm-up matches should have been played on home soil. Mm. The, the idea of having the South Africans come up and play in the UK, I think that was going to be done on the basis that the British government would underwrite it financially, which they clearly were not going to do. But it's just been this kind of situation from the get go, for, for, from a year out almost, where you're saying it's just not sustainable to do this, is it?
0: Mm. I do have some sympathy for them in that this third wave has coincided with the tour. So it's been disastrous timing, really. I agree with I, Stuart Brown's point about just play the three test matches makes perfect sense. Like, I think it's him in the Sunday Times as well who says that, you know, Warren Gatland effectively knows his team anyway, that yeah. these warm-up matches increasingly have become a waste of time. They were useful back in the day when a head coach mightn't be that familiar with all the players. But these days, modern technology being what it is, Warren Gatland knows everything there is to know about these players. So there is no great need for these warm-up matches. Like, to play the Sharks twice, I mean, I can't say we were all champion at the bit to watch that rematch last night.
1: No, to be honest, and, and I think historically, you know, once the Lions arrive in South Africa or Australia or New Zealand, I would always be clued in. I'd be I'd be listening and watching and and you know, what time is their warm-up match on against so and so? And and God, the feeling this week was who gives a you know, they're playing the sharks twice. They hammer them the first time, and and then, you know, I, I see in some of the match coverage that, you know. Uh, you know, Tyg Furlong, for example, wasn't particularly good in the game. And, and you're just thinking from a psychological point of view, how difficult it must be for the players to even get up for these games. The, sure. the, the, the trap of complacency must be huge in these circumstances. And I get the impression that's what happened them yesterday. Was it 26-all or 28-all at halftime? Yeah. And then they just wiped the floor with the Sharks in the second half when they're reminded, look, you can't allow this to happen, and, and they go and they get, get serious about their business. I also kind of feel sorry for Connor Murray, who at the last minute, because of Alan Wynne-Jones' injury, inherited the captaincy, this fantastic privilege and honour of being an Alliance captain, and it must be really, really challenging for him to just step into the breach at short notice in the most extraordinary circumstances and try to sustain this attitude of, competitiveness and freshness, which, again, I, I, I go back to the fact, July 24th, first test, it just seems an eternity away in these circumstances.
2: Yeah. I had to laugh as well, Joe, the, the player ratings or whatever, from, we'd probably be talking about England's ratings that the Times gives them, but there's uh, Lions player ratings, 104 out of 150 by Stephen Jones. And then they have like kind of a good day, bad day section on the right. And it's called The Lions Who Roared and Those Who Coughed. I thought it was rather <laughs> unfortunate in the circumstances.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, I'd still look forward to the tests if they can happen and they're not completely undermined by what's going on. But from this vantage point, it just looks like it's in a bad situation. So that's the front page of the Sunday Times. So page 64 here, the Mail on Sunday, Vincent Togan, danger zone. Ireland's Olympians are flying into a city clouded in risk and uncertainty and the team's medical experts are gearing up for, quote, unbelievable challenges. The couple of weeks in the build-up to these games for the athletes are laid out here brilliantly by Shane McGrath. And, well, it's no fun, to say the least, here.
1: No, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that you're trying to imagine what this is going to be like over there, Joe, because I always think, from an athlete's point of view, going into the athlete's village must be one of the most exciting experiences of all time i think billy used to refer to it as fantasy island and you see all of these young fit healthy excited people convening and mixing and just the social side of it just forever memorable for the rest of your life and and i i honestly wonder for some of the athletes who are going um do they really know what they're facing into? Because it's not going to be anything like a traditional Olympics. I, I think there's 114 on the Irish team now, maybe one more or two more to fill in, but they know they know what they're, they're facing now in terms of competition. But the circumstances they're flying into, and, and finally we have the, the, the situation where they're going business class, so there's comfort in, in, in travel, but even going business class, They're going to have to wear, or they're being advised to wear PPE uh, with, with visors and they're going to have to wear special masks. So this is for the 12 hour flight or whatever it is going to take them to get to Tokyo. And then they go into a kind of a quarantine for, for three days. And they also, for a lot of individual athletes who are going on their own, they'll have to share a room with probably someone they don't even know. So it's, It just strikes me, ordinarily, I'd be going. I've been at the last six, but I really wasn't comfortable traveling to this one, so I pulled out in in early March. And I'm so relieved I'm not going, Joe, because there is no sense of the locals wanting you there. I think after a huge acceleration of the vaccination program, there's now about 16% of the locals have been vaccinated. It's nowhere near what would make them comfortable. But with an Olympics, the IOC holds all the cards and I get the impression the Japanese government has been forced into a corner that they have to go ahead with this because they will pick up the bill on everything. Um, and we now have a situation where we know it's going to be behind closed doors. The whole experience for these athletes going over there is going to be so different from what historical, the athletes experience. So this is why I was really taken with this piece. Shane interviews, um, Dr. Jim O'Donovan, who's the chief medical officer, um, of, official Federation of, our, of the Olympic Federation of Ireland. And he also talks to Dr Kate Kirby. And it just sets out the practicalities of this and their practicalities like nothing we've ever known for Olympic athletes in the, in the history of the games.
0: No, it's true. It seems Team Ireland will have a vaccination rate of close to 100%. They have to keep a diary of all their symptoms and their general health for the 14 days prior to the flight. The flight of seems, is the riskiest part of the whole endeavor. They're, as you said, in quasi-quarantine for three days afterwards. They'll have tests both sides. It's interesting, the team are flying out in different cohorts. So there'll be, even though there's 114 members, they're going out in 10 different traveling parties because it seems that in some circumstances, the public health situation over in Japan will describe the whole plane as close contact. So they want to obviously avoid a situation whereby there's one positive on a plane with the vast majority of the Irish Olympians and then carnage would ensue. As you said, business class, PPE, it seems they're all being given FFP2 masks to wear right across the games, which have a, filtr- a filtration s- uh, uh, system in part. So three per day has been uh, have been given to all the athletes, which in fairness seems um, like a plentiful amount and, and should help the situation. But uh, yeah, full on. And, and the piece kind of concludes with Shane McGrath saying that the, the athletes thoughts will be consumed by the need to do the right thing all the time, be in the right place, do everything absolutely perfectly, and then they'll have to find time to manage the performance of their lives, which, you know, it's almost like an afterthought, the, the uh, perform well part. If you can just get through all the uh, protocol as a matter of interest, Vincent, did you decline going on ethical grounds or was it just more the personal risk or just that you thought the experience would be a bit miserable?
1: No, it was it was personal risk. I have an underlying health condition, Joe, and um, I would have been advised very strongly by the consultant not to go next or near it. Right. So I, I made the call quite early, so it wouldn't inconvenience the company uh, too strongly. But the other thing to remember here is as well, you know, a large part of the Olympic experience for the athletes is when their event ends, be it well or badly, they stay in the village and they and they can soak it up and go into the, the host city and really be part of it and and feel welcome and feel exhilarated by being Olympians, my understanding is that as soon as your event is over, you're flying home and you're getting out of there. Mm. So I, I just feel very sorry for, for the Olympians, particularly those you know who are probably, this was their only shot at it and they may even not be in as good shape now as they would have been a year ago. Um, this is not the Olympic experience that they should be having. And um, I know it's great for them to be able to say for the rest of their lives, they are Olympians. And that that is, is hugely... <laughs> your special distinction to have. But uh, these games are going to be games like no other.
0: Johnny, I'm very torn on how to think about all these things like the Lions tour and the Olympics, they're generally been described as money grabs. And I've no doubt that money is part of this. I think in the case of the South African Rugby Federation, they just are desperate for Money to almost stay afloat, so uh, it's almost desperation as opposed to out and out greed. The Olympics obviously generates a huge amount of money, so they're kind of written off, and, and we're sitting here and we're we're slamming them, and it's not as you know good for the athletes as it should be. But I mean, a part of me accepts that, but also thinks, well, nothing is as good as it should be, and. Like, it's it's nobody's fault that we're living with COVID. People are just doing their best here to try and have some kind of Olympics, have some kind of lines and There are going to be hitches along the way. I wonder, should we all be a bit more understanding about that?
2: I'm the same as you. I'm, I'm torn between. Well, like when you see a line in that piece that Shane wrote, that is, that is another mitigation against an outbreak that could end the dream of an entire team. I mean, that just seems so bonkers if you go back to pre-COVID times, we we are living in truly extraordinary situations. But like I wasn't aware when many references that he's an underlying condition there. Just for example, and when you consider you know, that there are, what would we say, twenty six outbreaks in the in, in in the Lions squad. And if you consider then, you know, the close contacts of those and the potential for somebody else then to get it, who does have an underlying condition, um it, it, it just it does make me wonder, do they really care about the human costs of the people involved? And is it is it essentially about just keeping the show on the road because they have to for money reasons? Um I don't know. Like I think I think the Olympics will I think a lot of people will watch with a lot less interest because um they know a lot of people will think that this should not be going ahead. Um I've sympathy for the athletes because as Vinny says it might be our last chance but um I don't know. i it's I think like everyone else, I just want this to be over now. And uh, you know, I, I think we we should from the racing and kind of football perspective, it doesn't remind you how lucky we've been that the show has been able to go on, you know?
0: Mm. Last word for you, Vincent, this will be the last mention of COVID, I suspect, uh, thankfully for this paper review. I, that balance between money grab and this is all wrong and the human cost versus everybody's just doing their best here to try and continue some way normally. And I, I do have sympathy to the latter argument as well, I must say.
1: I think the problem is the whole business model of an Olympics that I have a problem with, Joe, and and it's a business model that indemnifies the IOC against anything. Hmm. So the, IO, the IOC, no matter what happened here, we're not going to be out of pocket The Japanese government. We're going to be hugely out of pocket. So they, they have to honor all of the contractual, um, obligations as in television and that, and it was, I was going to fall back on the Japanese and accordingly on the Japanese people. That's the problem I have with the whole business model of an Olympics, which has always been weighed so heavily in the favor of the IOC. And I, and I remember distinctly leaving Rio, after the games there and if you remember two years earlier that had the world cup in in, in 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 brazil as well and the people having seen what happened to them what happened their country financially through hosting the world cup and then seeing these architectural confections being built for a two-week a two-week extravaganza and i remember specifically as the bus was pulling out of the olympic park and seeing all of these stunning structures that had been built to host these games and knowing that this impoverished city was going to take all of that financial heart heart heartbreak on board and the IOC would get into their business class seats and fly out of there never to be seen again Mm. that's the problem I have with the Olympics
0: Joe yeah oh that wider point I'm with you yeah
2: where, where does Qatar fit in then in, in, in the World Cup? Like, where, they're building stadia for what exactly? Like, who are ever going to go to these games again? Like, it, it's sick when you think of that and, like, the whole indifference of the locals because they can't even afford to go to these Olympic events in Rio.
0: Yeah.
1: I suppose the difference is, you know, you know, the, the, the poor people are building the stadiums in Qatar, but there's huge wealth in, wealth in
2: Qatar mm. as well, Johnny. So there's nobody to go to games, Vinny.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you, totally. But, you know, in a place like Brazil... The, the, the amount of poverty in a, play, in a city like Rio is breathtaking. And, you know, for the bill for the Olympic Games to fall on, on local people when they can't even get the most basic living conditions, it's an outrage, but it's, it's happened, it's, it's a recurring theme with the Olympics.
0: No, it is. And I think athletes have had to sign a waiver should they die as a result of COVID, just yeah. so the IOC are indemnified. So, exactly. you know, that kind of a situation for sure. Be under no illusion, the IOC is looking after the IOC. That's the starting point, I suspect. You're very welcome back. We have Johnny Ward and Vincent Hogan going through the Sunday papers. So, last check-in there with Andy Moran had Mayo three eleven, 11 Leitrim 2 points. And we're, what, 30, 35 minutes gone in that game. So, it's been over and really was over for a long time. Last night, of course, Kerry beat Tip by 11 points. Cork beat Limerick by 8. Tyrone beat Cavan by... Eight. And as Colm O'Rourke points out, Johnny, in some respects, it's great to have something to talk about apart from the matches. He's talking about Stephen Cluxton here, but he says it's great to have something else to talk about aside from the matches because there are 17 counties down and still we haven't had a game between any of the contenders. The quality of football has been dire. It's hardly going to get much better today when Mayo and Leitrim Meet This is last year's All-Ireland finalists taking on supposed equals Leitrim, who failed to win a game in the Allianz Football League, beaten by Antrim, Louth, and Sligo. Just in case you may have forgotten, Mayo gave Sligo such a beating that it'll probably be very difficult to create any interest in young men putting on a Sligo jersey for a long time to come. It should not be like this. Nobody in the GAA takes any satisfaction from humiliation. And he mentioned Special Congress in November will give everyone a chance to see whether the cold light of what is happening now will deliver... Or will uh, self int- will deliver change or will self-interest and worse still, self-preservation prevails. So I don't know this football championship, whatever a bit of magic was in the air last year with Cavin and Tipperary doing strange things and it gave knockout a certain kind of jeopardy. It's business as usual now and with no back door we're just not getting any games at the moment. This football championship thus far has been fairly grim going.
2: Yeah, he says just at the end of what you uh, read out there, another car crash awaits today. Um, and as he was as he was talking about Sligo there, I was reminded of a couple of things. I was in Sligo um, a year or two ago and I passed the Centre of Excellence and I was with um, a Sligo Rovers player, uh, Sligo Rovers footballer, and he said to me, like, that's a great facility, but he just wonders what is the actual point of this? And I spoke to Sligo Rovers, uh, the head of their academy, Conor O'Grady, um, recently, and they've they've brought massive success um, from players um, under age into Sligo Rovers. But on the flip side, Sligo football is in an awful state. And you look at that game May on Leitrim today. I was minded of being at, in Tum Stadium when I was growing up, watching the likes of Declan Darcy, watching Leitrim um, beat Galway. That what they did in 1994, um, I think, is one of the most amazing um, sporting events ever in Ireland. And if you haven't uh, listened to Kevin Brannigan, did a did a pod, a kind of a an audio review of it, like I guess a podcast and spoke to the people involved and spoke to what a meant to people of Leitrim and you'd nearly be crying at the end of it. But that day is gone, unfortunately, that day is gone. And there is no way you can bridge the gap between the professionalism of the senior counties and the likes of Leitrim and Sligo, whose players clearly are, you know, they know that there's nothing in store for them in the Championship. There's no way they can bridge this gap. They're demoralised before they even start. And Gaelic football at inter-county level, I think it probably has reached a different point. I know there will be a lot of traditionalists who... Love the you know the old provincial system, and it was great to see what happened last year. But it, we've come to the point where it's really damaging. I think the brand, it's damaging. It's damaging the legacy of these great games that we've had down the year. Where anyone going to Castlebar today, you know, knew what was in store. Even a Mayo fan is not going to enjoy that. It's demoralising for Leitrim, but it's damaging to the game of Gaelic football because. It's reached a stage where it's it's so professional, and I think tactics are so strong, and and I think you know coaching is so good that it's virtually impossible for the underdog to win. It just isn't really possible anymore, and um, for the likes of Leitrim to even make a, a game of it today against Mayo just isn't possible. And I don't know what they're going to do, but I, I imagine it'll turn into. You know, a league system kind of trumping the championship down the line or something, because this championship format is is not sustainable at all. And I I have to say, I've never been less interested in the All-Ireland Football Series than I am this year. And partly it is because nothing has happened yet. And as you say, 17 teams are gone.
0: Yes. Well, the shortened season, the absence of the qualifiers exacerbate the problem, and I, I take your point about people love the provincial championships. They certainly love the idea of them. The reality is pretty unlovable at the moment. Vincent, if the first half is replicated there in McHale Park, I think the final score will be about 40 points, Mayo to Leitrim 6, which is where we are. Has it, I'm trying, I was trying to think, like, has it been this bad before? Is it just the absence of the qualifiers is making it seem especially grim, at the moment, it feels like it's about as bad a season as I can remember.
1: Yeah, it's hard to remember it being more tepid at this stage, Joe. Um, and, and I think the thing that's dragging it all down is this adherence to a provincial structure that's not really fit for purpose. And you know, I'm mean, i not going to go back into that because people have talked this to death. But there was this artificial feeling to last year where Cavan won Ulster basically because Donegal were complacent and, and Tipperary won, won Monster, basically because Kerry were complacent against Cork. They were trying to come up with a game plan for the Dubs without actually dealing with the business in front of them. And there is this profound sense now that there's an inevitable All-Ireland final looming between Dublin and Kerry, and that that really will be all that matters in this Championship. Yes, there will be four provincial champions, Dublin and Kerry will be two of them and those provincial titles will mean virtually nothing to them. Uh, in Ulster, it, an Ulster title will always mean something. Um, and a Connacht title, we're going to have a Mayo Galway final. There'll be a bit of an edge to that, but it's, it's just being dragged down by the provincial structure and the provincial councils are very powerful within the GA and they're going to hang on for dear life to, to their, their own championships. But I think until and unless we, we bite the bullet with this, and change the whole structure of the Championship. Right now, you have Dublin and Kerry, and then there seems to be a gap even to the Mayos, particularly with Killian O'Connor out for the the season and Donegal's. And then there's another gap. So there's all these different layers of the Championship. And the best football we see is in the National League because they're playing their own standards in games. But a game like this, I was watching the Sligo-Mayo game and it was just boring after 10 minutes. And it sounds like this one is
0: very similar. It does, yeah. I mean, the floating younger voter who's interested in various sports, I don't really see what the attraction of the football championship is anymore. I think you could really realistically say if you watch Dublin Kerry in the end, you probably that's all you kind of really need to must see, unfortunately, which is crazy. Um, On the same page as that Colin O'Rourke piece, O'Rourke is largely writing about the Stephen Cluxton situation and and he's really making the point that has been made. You would think a, a quick phone call, he says, could tidy all of this up. Are you in or are you out? It's hardly an unreasonable request to make of The captain is what Colin O'Rourke says. Dermot Crowe writes a very interesting piece, I think. So he outlines the situation. He outlines what Desi Farrell said last week. He talks about Cluxton as a man of principle in certain instances. So he starts off by remembering that in Parnells, Cluxton was capable of springing surprises too. Seven years ago, he requested to be regraded to the second team. Because, he says, At that time, Parnells had a cast of inter footballers from outside Dublin and a naked ambition to achieve success quickly. But behind the success, the club was facing financial ruin. Despite a huge windfall after the sale of former grounds near Dublin Airport, the culture within Parnells at the time could not have been more removed from the kind of values which Cluxton and Dublin espoused. Uh, the club did not back his request and he sent a stinging letter to the executive. And so a Parnell source says... He wanted to play with his friends. He was promised a regrade it didn't happen. He wasn't comfortable with the way the senior team was going with all the imports. And a lot of his friends would have been on the junior team. So he wanted to play with them. And then Dermot Crow writes, and this is the interesting part, uh, Cluxton has trained with Dublin this year on a couple of occasions. Sources claim that the breach of COVID restrictions by the Dublin panel, which resulted in a 12-week ban for Desi Farrell, created tension in the relationship between Cluxton and the manager. So I don't know what's going on with Stephen Cluxton. That's one source, one report. Who knows what his reasons are? I'm sure they are something to do with his body as well. But that was an interesting line, I have to say, Johnny, buried towards the end of Dermacros' piece here.
2: It's, it's really intriguing in terms of this whole um, debate, which, you know, I think if, if, if it weren't so uninteresting, Gaelic football, in terms of Dublin's dominance in many respects, the, you know, the, the press would be all over this. Cluxton is... Definitely one of the most enigmatic characters in Irish sport, as, as Colman Rourke says, really gives interviews and so forth. But that reference about Parnells, where basically he was fed up that they were bringing in these outsiders and his mates were basically being disenfranchised by it, probably typical of the man. He, he totally um, doesn't want the limelight. But I wasn't aware, I have to say, at all of the potential that was that kind of um, the COVID breach that may have caused a chasm, but in terms of, you know, Vinny's on about Kerry being in the All-Ireland um, you know, and maybe nobody else, but if you are reading this, considering the talismanic figure that he's been, considering he's been the, the heart and soul of so much that Dublin have done, you would get a lot of hope because this is definitely unsettling, and as as they referenced, Desi Farrell has to deal with this pretty much every week, whereas Cluxton, is he coming back? What's the crack with Cluxton? And there doesn't seem to be any straight answer because, um, if, if, if I mean, if it is true that the COVID uh, breach were an issue, I mean, that's deeply embarrassing for Desi Farrell.
0: Well, it is, yeah. And again, it's one source. Who knows? But I agree with you, it would be. Vincent, what's your read on the whole situation? It's all very strange.
1: It's very strange. That line that Dermot uses about him wanting to be regraded um, within Parnells because there were too many non-Dublin players coming in. I mean, that that would very much tie in with the the perception of Stephen Cluxton over the years and, and the way his teammates would talk about him, that he would have a certain sense of integrity. But this is becoming a circus and, you know, it strikes me that everything that's described of Stephen Cluxton comes back to one thing. And that is he doesn't like the limelight, but look at the papers. His not coming out and providing clarity on this is putting him completely in the limelight. There's a line in Conor O'Rourke's piece that I find interesting. He's, he's talking about Cluxton and likening him in personality to Jim Gavin. And I can see why he'd say that, but he says, they immersed themselves in doing their jobs to the maximum of their ability, but did not think it made them much, if any, different from any other GA person. Well, everything about what Cluxton is doing now or not doing more pointedly, is tre- is kind of conveying himself as being different. and. You know, Colum says a simple phone call would resolve this. Well, that's assuming that the, the phone call is answered. And I'm not sure what level of communication has happened between Stephen Cluxton and Desi Farrell. But what I would say categorically is he's clearly not going to come back this year. You cannot bring someone in at this stage and say to Evan Comerford, Evan, you're back on the bench. That would be completely. That would be, contravene everything that Stephen Cluxton supposedly stands for. So we're assuming he's not coming back this year. Desi Farrell, who's going to be asked again after Dublin's next game, what's the story, any word from Cluxton? Desi should come out categorically for his own point of view and say, uh, Evan is my goalkeeper this year. Uh, Stephen has not retired, maybe back next year, we don't know, but he's not going to be involved this year. Desi has to say that. He's got to come out and, and, and bring clarity to it if Stephen Cluxton himself isn't going to bring clarity to it. And you saw it. You know, Cluxton is playing centre-back for Parnells on, the other night in the Division Three game, and there's a photographer there. There's going to be a photographer everywhere he goes. Stephen Cluxton, we're told, doesn't like the limelight. There's a very simple way of getting out of it.
0: Yeah, because he doesn't have to retire. He could just say, I'm out for this season. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. It's the plot thickens. What we were saying is like the Streisand effect during the week. Uh, Ironically, this um, absolute desire to not be talked about makes him one of the most talked about footballers in the country, I would think. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Two racing stories to touch on. So page 25 of the Sunday Times, Johnny Coolmore pays tribute after death of Galileo. It's quite a short piece, to be honest. Galileo's death obviously just announced Uh, one of the most influential horses in the history of flat racing has died. Uh, Galileo won the Derby, went on to become the dominant stallion of the modern era, was put to sleep yesterday at the age of 23. This was owing to a chronic uh, injury or uh, debilitating situation in his left forefoot. So put to sleep at the age of 23, born in 1998, trained by Edna O'Brien. Galileo produced a brilliant classic season in 01, won the Derby, the Irish Derby at the Curragh and the King George at Ascot. It was in retirement, however, that he proved even more successful for his owners, the Coolmore syndicate. John Magnier, it's a very sad day. So Galileo sired 91 Group One winners, Frankel being the most famous of all, while 20 then of his sons have produced top level winners of their own. His stallion fee remained a closely guarded secret, but reports estimated it to have been as high as 600,000 pounds sterling. By covering more than 150 mares, each breeding season, that would have made Galileo worth about £100 million sterling to Coolmore every year. I mean, the figures are just staggering. The ownership of Galileo was licensed to print £100 million sterling every year.
2: Yeah, it's very hard to kind of put a figure on this because Coolmore would have had, obviously, the breeding rights to Galileo, so they kind of had dominance over the mares that would be sent to him. And, you know, down the years as well, there was a kind of a... I guess there was a bit of a war going on between Coolmore uh, and um, Godolphin, so there wasn't much of a cross kind of mating going on um, from the two respective kind of breeding lines. So it's 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 impossible to quantify what he was worth to Coolmore, but whatever it is, the figure will probably understate it because of the legacy as well and the stallions that he's produced. And uh, the the whole story of Galileo is 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 to me is it's 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 completely remarkable. And you've all these sliding doors moments where Vincent O'Brien. In the 60s goes over to america he basically is advised to look at this horse and doesn't really like the horse he's a yearling he says there are anything else for me to have a look at he looks at this yearling and um, that's by a, a little known stallion at that time even though i think he'd won the kentucky derby called northern dancer and he said yeah i like that horse he persuaded the american owner to buy him and the horse turned out to be nijinsky and because of nijinsky northern dancer became the dominant stallion line and produced saddler's wells and saddler's wells produced Galileo, and this all came from Vincent O'Brien taking a, a liking to this yearling in, in the States in the 60s. But we'll talk about, it. Galileo's influence is, is just, it, it extends and it extends and it extends. And what, what what's kind of remarkable, we're gonna talk about Jim Bulger, obviously. Um, Jim Bulger won two Guineas this year, um, one with Poetic Flair and one with Max Sweeney. And when Poetic Flair won the, uh, I, when he won the English Guineas, Poetic Flair is by dawn approach. Dawn approach is by new approach new approach, is by Galileo. So you had to go back that far. And when he won the Irish Guineas, he won it with Max Sweeney, who's by Teofilo. Teofilo is by Galileo. And... As, as much as um, you know, Galileo will go down as one of the most successful stallions of all time, this is what's what's really strange in the story, is that despite the fact that he was an unbelievable racehorse, and when he beat Fant- when he was beaten by Fantastic Light in Leopardstown 20 years ago, apparently there were around 20,000 people at Leopardstown that day for a flat meet, which is completely unheard of now, it was real box office stuff but initially at studs he wasn't going very well, and they dropped his stallion fee, I think from 50 grand to 37 and a half, which now seems absolutely incredible, Jim Bulger went there and he said, "I don't care about this. I'm going to invest in Galileo, and he's had a load of success since. Even though he's probably not flavour of the month with Coolmore at the moment."
0: Johnny, how average or so how common is it for a good to average horse to produce incredible offspring, and vice versa?
2: Good, good to average horses do not go to studs. So essentially, if you go to stud in rare circumstances. You know, Frankel's half brother will go to Stodd base in his pedigree. The same with Monju. His his half brother went to Stodd, he, even though he never raced. Essentially, you have to be a, an extremely high standard. And if you go through like all the Derby winners, even if you win a Derby, the chances are like you're not going to be uh, necessarily a successful stallion. It it really is um, Darwinism. It is the survival of the fittest, and that's why you know Coolmore have been so dominant because they've been able to. Um, you know, use Galileo and, and others just aren't able to afford it or don't have access to him. But you know, there there's a small, small group of stallions right. that have um, a huge role, and, you know, most, even, there's no guarantee Poetic Flair who won the Derby, this or won the Guineas, no guarantee he'll make it at stud. He was by a stallion, Dawn Approach, who um, was basically written off completely as a stallion, was worth very little, um, and that that's an outlier, but it's it's very rare. I mean, it's, okay. it's a small selection of stallions that have kind of all the influence, and what's been interesting as well, um, Joe, is that Frankel has come along. Frankel is by far the best horse that Galileo has ever produced, And he has exploded as a stallion over the last sort of couple of months. He's had two derby winners he's had the winner of the falam at the other night and maybe he is now the successor to galileo but um i suppose lastly on this i was when i was in coolmore galileo's daddy Sadler's as well as i remember years ago and he was coming to the end at that time although he was still covering mares and i said to your man how many mares does he cover a day now uh, sadder as well and he says to me oh he covers one but to be honest he'd like to cover a few more um, and <laughs> but towards the end, um, Galileo by all accounts he was just running out and he, he got sick and he, he got a humane death but you know to be honest it deserved an awful lot more coverage in the papers when Prince Philip died at the age of whatever it was you know there was there was there were probably supplements to him this this horse was absolute racing royalty and the legacy will be you know Galileo's legacy will outlive me for example Um, it'll be a bigger legacy than that of Aidan O'Brien and it probably did deserve um you know a bit more coverage I think in the papers but maybe that's where racing's at
0: Well, I think, I mean, it's a hell of a comparison, Prince Philip to a horse, but I I, I don't (laughs) take the
2: point. Um, It wasn't going down that particular route, but um, they were both royalty, put it that way. Okay, okay,
0: You're very welcome, Max. So final thoughts from Vincent Hogan, chief sports writer with the Irish Independent. Johnny Ward with us as well, racing journalist, often here talking football on Saturdays as well. And more besides in McHale Park, it's Mayo 4-12, Leitrim 4 points, second half just underway. So that is a 20 point lead for Mayo, 24 points to four at the moment. In the Connacht semi final. We were talking Galileo before the news headlines there. Another horse racing story, and it's a continuation of a theme, really, from Paul Kimmage in the Sunday Independent, page 21 here. He watched with interest, as I suspect you did as well, Johnny, the just hearing on the horse racing industry. In short, it would seem that we might be headed for an interesting conversation between Lynn Hillier, who is the IHRB, that's the Irish horse racing regulatory body's chief veterinary officer and Paul Kimmage down the line. So the piece concludes with her saying she'd be happy to chat with Paul at a later date. He says deal. So that could be incoming. Uh, In effect here, uh, Paul lays out the uh, contributions of Brian Kavanagh, who's the HRI horse racing Ireland chief executive, Dennis Egan, the outgoing IHRB chief executive, and then Hillier. They're all very upset with the reporting Of the problems in the horse racing industry as a veterinary surgeon and a scientist when the truth is not reported correctly, it grates. I'm hoping this morning we can set some of those facts straight is what Lynn Hillier said to the Oireachtas committee. In effect, one of their contentions is that um, Paul Kimmage has uh, spoke with Jim Bulger. One of the interesting bits from Jim Bulger was that an English trainer had been on to him saying that the trainer had bought six horses and had run tests of his own. Expensive tests at that and three of the horses from Ireland had returned adverse findings, and this was something rejected by the IHRB. For instance, in the 42, it's quoted here in Paul Kimmage's piece, Kimmage's uh, piece asserted that an English trainer found three of six horses he acquired in Ireland to have shown evidence of a number of currently unidentified possible keto steroids in a rather unusual step. Both the IHRB and British Horse Racing Authority said samples carried out proved the claims were rubbish. So Paul Kimmage has spoken to that British trainer in this piece who says of the uh, rejection of his claim, it wasn't that they found nothing far from it. There was just a difference of opinion on how to interpret the results. So the plot thickens. I mean, I didn't realize there would be various ways to interpret these results. I thought they were just merely scientific results and it was positive or negative. But n- it now seems there's a difference of opinion on how to interpret the results. And then Paul Image returns to Thursday and across the course of Thursday, the point was made that the organization, the IHRB and Paul Kimmage had had communications and Paul makes the point that they were only initiated by him, never them. It wasn't like they got on to him last week and asked about the list of doped horses, 24 in total, which had been sent to the paper. Nobody was in touch with him about that, but he's reached out to Lynn Hillier and she said they'll talk at a further date. So. Johnny, we're in a bit of a holding pattern. I'm sure this is the talk of the racing industry still. Jim Bulger very much standing by his comments. And, uh, well, I look forward to that chat with Lynn Hillier and Paul Kimmage for sure. But um, holding pattern, I think, Johnny, there wasn't much out of the Oireachtas Committee, which caused huge waves beyond the uh, various bodies, the IHRB and Horse Racing Ireland standing their ground.
2: Yeah, um, I suppose a few things on this. I wrote that, the 42 piece. and. Uh, you, I, I yeah, so, the, the, well, it's it's just in its important context because when I said the claims were rubbish, I probably could have used better um, terminology than that. But essentially, um, the BHA and the IHRB it, apparently, according to themselves and according to Lynn Hilliard, they did this extremely um, diligent testing and they didn't find anything. Now, the toxicologist of that trainer, I don't know, I'm I, I, I like you, I don't know anything really about drugs, I don't I don't know how what the best testing is, I know that hair sampling is probably the, the best way to go in the sense that you can prove that a horse um, might have been injected with something in his or her lifetime um, but a few other points on this, um, Lynn Hilliard does not tend to give interviews and, and a lot of journalists have spoke to me about her being very hard to, to nail down in terms of interviews so I wouldn't necessarily hold your breath on that interview she may or may not do with Kimmage but if she does it will be great stuff and um, I have to hail Paul Kimmage because I think this is proper you buy the Sunday newspaper to see what Paul Kimmage is writing about race and um, I think newspapers are in a difficult place now where people don't buy them a lot of people probably don't subscribe to the, to the Sunday Independent since it went um, since the Independent went subscription but stuff like this would make everyone want to read it and you know I really have to hail Kimmage on this I think some of the stuff he's done has been very good, some of it has been very speculative, um, but he's definitely, I think this is a very interesting article because there's a contradiction in terms of what Lynn Hillier said at the Rocktas hearing and what Kimmage's understanding is of it. Um, I did try to find out today if he were aware because he's given a timeline of events here from September of 16, September 16th of last year. The trainer delivers his report to the BHA and he, he says the BHA delivered a final report on December 15th. Um, I'm I've, I've trying to find out if Paul Kimmage knew this before his piece last Sunday because it would have been a very strange thing to leave out because he didn't mention it. But I haven't been able to find that out so I'll obviously have to reserve judgment on that. But it's intriguing stuff, Joe. Everyone in racing is talking about it. Nobody can seem to tell me anything apart from there are... Um, you know, there are suspicions. One owner says to me this morning, he sent me an email, uh, a WhatsApp, he said, stay on the right side of this story. And by that, he would mean the Paul Kemid side. He thinks that drugs are rampant in racing. I've seen no proof of this whatsoever. Um, it's a massively well-kept secret if it is going on. You know, Jim Bulger has, has had long-term animosity with the Turf Club going back a long, long time. Um, he did speak to me in, off the record about these kind of concerns last year. Now they've obviously come on, on the record. Um, but I, I just can't... I can't kind of, I I guess, furnish people with any more details than what's there because I'm inclined to believe the BHA and I can't see why the BHA would try to suppress something. I can't can't see why it wouldn't um, deliver, um, you know, a a proper report into the alleged drugs of these horses. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what happens. But one thing Jim Bulger has done, he's gotten everyone talking about this and there's definitely no harm in that because um, I can't prove that drugs aren't widespread in racing, but as of yet, there's essentially no proof whatsoever that it is widespread. And it's kind of a watch this space for me.
0: Well, I think that's very much it, isn't it, Vincent? And to see what comes out now in the wash, you have somebody as respected as Jim Bulger making these strong claims, knowing he's 100 percent right in his own opinion. His stable staff are telling him you're absolutely 100 percent right. We're talking to uh, people who work in stables all around the country and you're onto something here. And last week, Paul Kimmich had anecdotal reports of letters written and, and sent to the racing authorities outlining, you know, this trainer has all of these substances in this cabinet and I was shown them and they're in his uh, office. Go and look. And, you know, so you've that side of it. And then you've the Racing Authority saying there's absolutely nothing to see here. <laughs> uh, these are not mutually exclusive. Someone's wrong here.
1: Yeah, someone's wrong. Um, I was very struck. I mean, I didn't watch the the committee hearing, but I, I did watch snippets of Lynn Hillier on the 61 News. And I was very struck by how stridently she spoke and this sense of almost hurt for the sport that she was trying to communicate. But then you read this piece and and there's a lot of gray areas in this. And and I think you mentioned it already, Joe, a really interesting line for me is that every contact Paul has had with the IHRB has been initiated by himself. Now, he's been on this story for for weeks with, with Jim Bulger. And when someone of the caliber of Jim Bulger comes out and says what he says, I can only imagine it's like a bomb going off in that sport. And this is this is not going away and i find it interesting that they have made no 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 efforts to contact paul and, and talk about what he knows or what he has been told um so yeah it's 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 going to run and run this story i suspect and it's it's not a good look for for the sport and i think particularly jim bulger's line that there will be a lance armstrong moment that's That's a very, very damning suggestion about the the, the sport as as it's run at the moment.
0: Yes, sometimes lines like that stick and that one has stuck. And again, when you say Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong was winning everything around him. So did he mean a direct comparison as in the most successful or did he not? I don't know. So, you know, there's a there's still a vagueness to it and, and legally Jim Bulger said himself, you have to be vague, but it's hanging over the sport now in a big way. We had Jerry Lyons on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's a trainer and, you know, he said he's often winning races. And now people will text him and say, oh, are you are you up to no good as well? And he obviously said he absolutely is uh, abiding by all the rules. But his point was almost look, (sighs) you, you hear things, but it's always vague and it's often jokey and there's black humor. But he said, if Jim Bulger is saying this, then we all have to stop and listen. And uh I don't know. The other thing's jo- yeah.
2: I, I, like Ger, so I spoke to Ger Lines at that time last year as well, and I'm happy to say that now because he's been on the record since. And his his point was, well, I'm not cheating, so how can I be beaten? um you know these these top trainers and, and all the best trainers in the world, if I'm not cheating, essentially. So like that, you know, it's it's raising doubt. And if you if you reference poetic flair, the horse that I spoke about, Jim Bulger's horse, who was incredibly aggressively campaigned this year. Now Jim Bulger is clearly not drugging his horses, or well. he's a very wacky sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. So if if poetic flair, the way he was campaigned. And the amazing durability that he showed in in nearly winning um, the Irish Guineas as well as the, the British Guineas, um, th- you know, and the French Guineas. Basically, the the what he showed over those three weeks, it just shows that you can do it in terms of a level playing field. But Jim doesn't think the level playing field is there. No. Um, now. Like, why are the drugs used if they're there? Are they used for for injuries? Are they used for performance enhancing? Because, you know, they they can't show up on the day of the race meeting. Um, It's just a very, very grey area. Um, And in fairness to Jim, the one thing is he's 80 years of age or whatever he is, and he has definitely opened this up as an issue because I do feel... Irish Racing at times is happy just to kind of just let things go on and, and not really look too hard at what is actually going on. So I think he's he deserves kudos in that regard, and certainly so does Paul Kemage.
0: We're also assuming they're performance enhancing in all, on all occasions. I mean, we've seen the Viking Horde situation where it was to do the complete opposite. So, I mean, that's just to complicate matters further. Uh, the most damning thing Bulger said for me, uh, well, one, he criticised the lack of appropriate testing, and then it turned out that hair sample testing had been happening since last summer. He was saying he's not so sure that the right actions are being taken after testing. Now, if if that is where we are, then this thing is about to blow up in a huge way because that's uh, scandalous. And obviously the racing authorities, again, are denying, denying those accusations as vehemently as possible. So that is where we are. And everybody's watching this to see where it goes over the next while. Uh, That's on page 21 of the Sunday Independent. If you're interested, I know lots of people are. Uh, We've put this off long enough. England against Italy.
2: <laughs> we have to pre empt the result now, Joe, for people who are listening on Monday.
0: You Go on then. For the for the Monday audience, Johnny, what happened?
2: Well, they'll probably say the opposite to what I what I say, but I I I I, I think England, to be honest, I think they're the better team. And uh, I was talking to uh, the boy Ronan in the in the off the ball office during the week, and he was bemoaning how uh, England's style of football. But I actually don't think it's that bad, and it's um it's amazing that you know history is written by the winners because Southgate now has been he's uh, he's, he's he's practically been knighted by um, Wayne Rooney in the um, in the Sunday Times already, as is Harry Kane. But you know they 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 kind of blew it a bit, I thought, at the World Cup against. Croatia and you know they rolled their luck a bit against Denmark so if they lost to Denmark what would people be saying but um I have to say like you can I can already see it all over social media England can have a field day at Wembley and um, is beside Rooney's article which I think is a little bit harsh in what he actually says but that could be on the on the on the Italian wall tonight if uh, they have a kind of a GA manager mindset anyway Vincent only
0: I'd say about half a million words written across the Sunday papers in this game what piece do you want to go with
1: uh i suppose an old colleague of mine david walsh um writes an interesting profile of him joe and um you get some sense of the personality and i I think why people are a little bit conflicted in ireland over this is that Garth southgate comes across a perfectly decent intelligent guy who who doesn't buy into the the cliched aspects of management and uh he seems just a a really decent individual and and to be fair i agree with johnny I, i i think england have been Pretty good to watch. There's some really exciting young players like Mason Mount, Jack Grealish, Jadon Sancho, um, Sacco, the, the Arsenal player, all really exciting young talents who are going to be there for a few years. And I, as someone who worked in England, and I worked in England the late 70s, early 80s, when it would have been, English people would have had every reason to make your life uncomfortable at the time. There was a lot happening, obviously, with the troubles and... Some of the people I worked with in England for Hater Sports Agency are some of the best people I've ever met, and and I would be really happy for them because I know what it would mean to them for England to finally win a trophy all these years after '66. But then there's the moronic side of the supporters, and they're almost certain to to boo the Italian anthem tonight. And and as soon as you hear that, something happens, mm-hmm. and it struck me, you know, when they were playing Denmark the other night, and I was. Quite happy for England to win that game, but I let a roar out of my when Denmark scored. And I, did, <laughs> I didn't see that coming, mm. but it just happened. It came out of me sporadically. And I think it's because of the behavior of some of their supporters. But you can't obviously describe English people as this generic bunch who are all the same. They're very, very different. They're, they're alike.
2: When, when you say that, though, right, so if they say, in Kenny, you're born with a hurl in your hand, are we, as Irish sports fans, just effectively born and raised with this willingness that England do not win and we just cannot shake it, regardless of national anthem booing, regardless of how nice the people are, is it just in us that we don't want England to win?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's certainly something like that, Johnny. I mean, I know when I go to Twickenham and I hear swing low, the chariots swing low, and I and I just... I instinctively think I'd love them to fall on their faces here. Um, but no, I look, I I, I I go back to Southgate and I, I think Southgate is, is a large part of the reason that people are torn here. You, you've Paul McGrath's piece in The Sunday World where he's talking about him as a former teammate and how decent the guy he was. And in actual fact, because of that decency, Paul couldn't see a future manager in him. Um, but David's piece... Um, an interesting line in it and I don't know if it's David pushing himself into the picture a bit much here but he he talks about when Southgate was playing for Middlesbrough and they were beaten in a match 4-1 by Arsenal and he's coming away after the match and he gets a text from Southgate. Look, he says I know we're friends but I don't want that to affect what you write I played poorly and you've got to say that. Yeah. Now, I can't imagine too many footballers doing that. I can imagine, I would imagine most footballers, most human beings actually, um, would actually be hoping against hope that a, a journalist you're friendly with would go easy with you. That he might give you a, a seven you didn't deserve rather than the five you did. And um, so I, I find that's interesting that it it kind of gives you a sense of this guy, he's, he, what he feels, the level of importance he attaches to a sense of integrity. And I think that's making him a very, very likable manager.
0: Yeah, and usually I think you'd find a character like Southgate just too bloody sweet to be wholesome, but it seems yeah. very genuine and it's impossible not to warm to him. And there's there's some lovely kind of behind the scenes stuff in that Walsh piece, like when Southgate lost his job at Millsbury, hadn't been expecting to lose it because they won that very night when he was told he'd lose the job and he got home and wife and kids in bed because they knew the team had won. So he was probably okay. And he uh, sat down that evening and (laughs) made a list of things he would need to return to Middlesbrough, like the car, the mobile phone, the laptop and listed them all out, which I don't think most of us would be too worried about. But that's what he did. And then the next morning, his daughter Mia was upset about the situation and she was due to speak at school in front of the assembly and didn't want to. Obviously, after getting the news, her dad was sacked, but her parents explained to her that you have to speak and it's just the right thing to do. And you can kind of imagine that's how the Southgate's And Dave Walsh quotes Sir Martin Samuel, who wrote in the Mail this week, don't think of Southgate as a nice guy, but rather as a good guy. And there is a distinction there. So that's Walsh's piece. Rooney's piece is OK. He's had some amazing pieces, Rooney. So I'm, I'm, I'm holding him to an unbelievably high standard. I, he was the first fella I flicked towards on the football. It's OK. He talks about, you know, stuff you sort of know anyway, like Harry Kane works really hard in training and Lampard's worked hard in training. Says he's happier that England are playing Italy as opposed to Spain because Spain would have just owned the ball. I thought um, if we're talking about insights into Southgate, Graeme Souness gives us an unbelievable insight into Mancini and Viali on page 20 of the Sunday Times. He played for Sampdoria when they were young and coming through and Souness was like the experienced player. and. He was there to kind of help the youngsters through. So Mancini and Viali, who we still see on the sideline together and hugging. And Viali, thankfully, seems to be over a lot of his health issues and just a great insight. So when I first met a 19-year-old Roberto Mancini at Sampdoria, he reminded me of me at that age. He was petulant. He thought he knew it all, a bit like I'd been at Spurs. Every 10 minutes in training, the arms would go up, the head thrown back in the classic dramatic gesture as if to say, what are you doing, you fool, if he wasn't happy with you? As you can imagine, that went down well with me, (laughs) says as soon as and they had exchanged words several times. At one stage, he told Trevor Francis, who had more Italian, to translate that there would be consequences if Mancini spoke to me like that again. And you can kind of imagine that put the end to it. So uh, they became the gold twins, Viali and Mancini and very different people. Viali hung on every word that people were telling him at that age. But Roberto knew everything at the age of 19. He was superior technically. He had all the clubs in his bag. But he didn't work as hard as Viali. And he says, in my two years at Sampdoria, there were more fights and blows exchanged than in my seven years at Liverpool. So he says of Viali, a diplomat, intelligent, uh, good thinker, good with people and humble. And uh, there you go. I just thought that was really good, Johnny, to get that first hand insight. I mean, if you're the Sunday Times and you have Sunus on your books and then you find out he played with Mancini and Viali, I mean, it's quids in.
2: <laughs> I was I wondered like going to the sports centre I think hey this could work as a piece <laughs> because I just found a photo here and you know a lot of this tournament has been kind of laced with nostalgia for me when you see Vialli and Mancini and um you know I I have this kind of thing that I, I never want to see people older looking older than the last time I saw them and you know you see Mancini and Vialli getting that bit older but it brings me back to the days of watching Italian football when we probably only had two channels and it was It was the most amazing thing ever. And you see the Sampdoria jerseys in that page and it it kind of brings you all back. But um, whatever soonest learned from them in terms of he speaks, the Italians back then did think more deeply about the game than we did. Although we have since caught up, they saw it as a sign, something you studied. I learned so much when I was there, uh, even from the young guys I played with and tried to bring uh, that back to Britain with me when I became a manager. Tried might be the opposite word if you're a Liverpool fan.
0: Some of the hype is obviously uh, just for an English audience. Like throughout the Sunday Times, they've asked various quote unquote celebrities like three questions. And so, for instance, on this page, it's just caught my eye. I mean, I think we could all live without knowing this Uh, watching brief. Rick Astley, pop star. (laughs) Where are you watching the match this evening at home in London? End of answer. I mean, it, you wouldn't say it's blowing <laughs> your mind in terms of insight, <laughs> but Rick Astley, everyone is watching the match at home this evening in London. His favorite player is Harry Maguire, and he thinks it will be England two, Italy one. So that's dotted around uh, the Sunday Times. You, with
2: various you do, you do kind of wonder as well, like, and you read, you know, you send me on that article in the Guardian um, about the Danish fans who r- really felt intimidated at the game, in the semi-final, yeah. and very lacked security and all that. And funny what Vinny is saying there. That's exactly what my. Fo- worked in England and he worked for the IRA campaign was really kicking off and it was very easy to be anti-Irish and he said I'd much prefer an English boss than an Irish boss when I was over there he had great time for the English but at the same time you wonder um, how much uh, you know England winning this would be good for Boris Johnson and good for this sort of Brexit nonsense nationalism that has taken over the country and part of me wants it to fail in that regard as well
0: I know they're, they're, I mean Pretty Patel just must have no shame like two weeks mm. three weeks ago she was saying it was kind of not so bad to boo the players and she got that and now she's in her freshly opened England jersey and, and you know, putting in on, tweets to beat on the On that, um,
2: J- James McDermott's piece is, is very good. He, he speaks about Southgate. There's a couple of lines, but but he says, Southgate is always polite in public, but can be cutting in private. Unimpressed by the halftime team talk given by sven and Ericsson. during a quarter-final defeat to Brazil at the 2020- 2022 World Cup, Southgate complained that England needed Winston Churchill, but got Ian Duncan Smith. Mm. And then he mentions uh, the aforementioned Patel, Uh, After the victory over Germany, the Home Secretary treated, what a performance, what a team. It's coming home. Only for one person to quickly retort, if football came home, you would try to deport it.
0: (laughs) It is quite striking, Vincent, that this team have stood in flagrant and high profile opposition to this Tory government on several issues. And (laughs) shamelessly, shamelessly, Boris and friends have jumped on this bandwagon and it's, it's just like uh, you just couldn't be a politician. The, the barefaced cheek of this is almost staggering.
1: Listen, we, we had the posturing of Boris Johnson meeting Marcus Rashford, for example, when Rashford was in the midst of that campaign to continue school meals during school holidays. And like the idea that a young footballer is doing the job of government and telling these people how to how to how to govern uh, was astonishing and breathtaking but they these tories i, I sometimes look at reese mogg and I, I have that famous image of him reclining across the letter couch in house of and it's all a pantomime to them hmm. and they really don't give any sense of not just caring about people but understanding people and you know you you, you just can see it now johnson will be all over this like a rash tomorrow if they win Priti Patel, what, a, what an obnoxious person. Um, and I think the whole Brexit thing anyway, Joe, it has really, it has caught in microcosm that toxic superiority complex that these Tories have. Um, and it's going to be, it's one of the reasons I think people are slightly terrified of England winning tonight, mm-hmm. because all of these obnoxious gits, as I call them, will be coming out of the woodwork. and and taking ownership of something that has nothing to do with them. I think if you look at that England team, you've Rashford, you've Sterling, you've Jordan Henderson, all of these guys with a very clear social conscience. And I I don't know, I'm sure it's probably Jordan Henderson has been part of the, 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 the decision that if they win a large portion of their prize money will go to the NH- NHS. I mean this is this is the modern thinking in that dressing room and it's so divorced from Tory government.
2: No. But 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 the the problem the problem on that is Vincent like you know you, Boris Johnson is absolutely obnoxious before the 2019 election he didn't he memorably basically hide in a fridge that he wouldn't have to answer a question from the government and in that election they got forty three point six percent of the popular mm-hmm. vote the highest percentage for any party since 1979. So when you when you when you're backed by the people despite clearly showing that you're, you know, you, you lie, you're you're deceitful. You don't care about people, yet you still get elected. What does that say? It basically says you can. I, I tell you oh, what you it says, like
1: one... it tells you that the Labour opposition has been lamentable and continues mm. to be lamentable.
0: What I dread if they win are the think pieces by Brexiteers saying Brexit has somehow allowed the national team to self-actualise. And, you know, yeah, that's, co- like, I mean, the the, that, that's coming. That's coming. That's coming. We finally yeah. have the confidence yeah. to step forward.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Joe. Somebody is going to consider that a really intellectual (laughs) thing.
0: (laughs) By the way, Eamon Sweeney. So, like the Sunday Independent main section, not the news section, but the main section has Shane Coleman arguing after twenty tournaments, it's time to support England. Whereas Eugene O'Brien is saying, "No way, I'm not ready." Eamon Sweeney's definitely not ready. He's he he couldn't be more um, of the opinion. How dare we even think about supporting England? So, uh, do you want them to win, Johnny, or no? No. Okay. Vincent, ultimately, will you know until you start watching it or have you made up your mind?
1: No, I think I know, I think (laughs) I know, Joe. And I think the moment the ball kicks off, I'm... Forza Italia
2: I suppose briefly The the, the contradiction is Joe Is that they've effectively Two Irish lads in the team Harry Kane even has Connemara links But that actually makes it Even harder Like every time The Times Paul Rowan has a good piece About Declan Rice and Grealish And you can As much as you can forgive Grealish I mean Declan Rice Seeing him blast out God save the Queen And I fully respect There are people on this island Who have mutual And British Irish nationality I cannot watch Declan Rice Blast out God save the Queen And want England to win anything
0: yeah it's um difficult to play devil's advocate to that one but yeah okay fair enough (laughs)
2: i'm sure you have something better than that
0: i can i can like i hear you i hear you on on rice i look he was young he was young
2: we were all young
0: well that's true uh fellas we're pretty much out of time is there any last piece you want to direct people towards or, or mention briefly
1: I suppose uh, there's the Liam Brady interview by Philip Quinn in the mail, Joe. Uh, I would find this interesting because I'm old enough to remember Brady as an absolutely world-class player. One of the few we would have had, um, who obviously was magnificent for for Arsenal in the old first division and then went to Italy and played for Juventus and Sampdoria. I don't particularly like Brady as a pundit. He just strikes me as a a lazy pundit. I, I, I don't hear much enlightenment coming from him. But th- this guy was a magnificent footballer, and it was such a thrill to have a player of his calibre wearing the green of Ireland. But I, I remember just a personal story. Um, I remember Gay Byrne on his morning programme before the squad was announced for the 1990 World Cup. And uh, of course, there was huge excitement that we were going to Italy. And Gay Byrne thought it was an outrage that uh, Liam Brady, who was then 34, and playing with West Ham, but not playing particularly well with West Ham. But he was a national treasure, and Gay thought he should be in the in the in Jack Charlton's squad. And I got a phone call from Joe Duffy, who was then a researcher on the Gay Burn program, <laughs> saying, "Would you come on and discuss this with 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 Gay? Because I had written a column saying Jack was right that a 34-year-old footballer who can't really hold his place in the West Ham team wouldn't have much to offer in the biggest stage in the world." But what he didn't tell me was he he was going to put me on with Brush Shields, the musician Brush Shields, who absolutely (laughs) eviscerated me for not having enough respect for one of our greatest ever players. And uh, it was a a very sobering interview, I have to say. But this this is a great interview by Philip Quinn, where he talks about that era and he talks about how he holds no grudges um, towards Jack, who obviously is deceased now. Um, and it's an interesting piece because he also talks about his own mistakes as a rookie manager and again i remember interviewing paki bonner in glasgow and i think one of the things that brady did when he was celtic manager was he dropped packy um so he's a, he's a sparky edgy kind of personality to deal with and i'm not sure he would ever have been really suited to management but he he found his 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 place really eventually at arsenal in in, in charge of youth development mm.
0: Yeah, it's on page 74. It's an interesting read and uh, talks about his love of John Giles as well. I mean, really, I'm the just going to sp- sp- spend the day trying to track down this Gay Byrne piece, frankly. I, yeah. Any contact <laughs> I have at RTE will be emailed promptly. Go through the archives. I know,
2: I know, like, the pandemic has gone on a long time and a lot of us have been locked up, but we we'll probably almost forgotten about that phase where the TV schedule was littered with vintage games to get us through it. And one night, RTE put on 1974 an absolutely raucous Daily Mount Park, Ireland versus USSR. And I'm not sure I'd really seen footage of it before. Giles was coming towards the end. I think it was Brady's debut. It was. It Don Gibson's got a yeah. hat-trick. Yeah. And I was watching this game and, and just wondering, and as you mentioned the late Jack Charlton, how have we got to a situation where Ireland have been labelled as a team that can play football? The, 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 the pitch at Daily Mount was absolutely awful. And we were passing the ball as if we were Brazil. And Brady looked like, I mean, anyone who was fortunate enough to be there i think we'll never forget the long hair of Liam brady that day he looked absolutely amazing
0: mm, 18 i think that was his debut certainly yeah fellas enjoyed the final this evening thank you so much for uh, the chat great stuff vincent hogan from the irish independent johnny ward pleasure as always thanks gents who do you want to win joe oh i think on balance italy i only realized i've been cheering england all the way through and something in the semi-final clicked with me the reality of what i was wishing into fruition
2: to paraphrase paraphrase brian clough you had a chat with yourself and you agreed you were right
0: (laughs) pretty much pretty much i pulled back from the cliff edge just at the end but you know what though i if england win it won't be like oh no awful i will find myself watching southgate and the team walk around wembley and i won't be disgusted either you know that way and declan rice and declan rice and jack Grealish. all our guys fellas thanks a million cheers (laughs) thanks so the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.